Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, June 4th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Senate Public Health and Welfare Committee holds a hearing on medical marijuana. Plus, Moderna files for full FDA approval of its COVID-19 vaccine. Then, Mississippi's abortion debate intensifies in the lead-up to a pivotal Supreme Court case. And a look at how the state spends on schools. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Initiative 65 to legalize medical marijuana in Mississippi is in limbo after the state Supreme Court ruled the ballot initiative process to be unconstitutional. But public pressure to establish a medical marijuana program persists, as evidenced by last week's protest in Jackson. On Thursday, the Mississippi Senate Committee on Public Health and Welfare heard testimony from medical marijuana advocates, along with relevant experts, on the viability of medical marijuana in the state. James Perry is the chairman of the Marijuana Subcommittee of the State Board of Health. He tells senators he's concerned a so-called medical program might not be strictly that. We were tasked working with Dr. Dobbs and Chris and the people at the department staff to try to do our best to make the program uh, workable and as medical as, as possible. Uh, we were tasked with a, a medical marijuana program and getting it all set up, uh, but we kept on getting this tension between the business interest and the medical interest. And I, I couldn't help but the people that were contacting me a whole lot, you know, good people that are trying to make a living and have no qualms with that whatsoever. They were interested, understandably so, much more in how much product do you sell. And that kept them being reminded, well, that's like an opioid manufacturer coming and say, how can we, you set up rules so that you can sell more opioids? What that was problematic for us as we were trying to craft what was supposed to be a medical program. And that tension of you, you got to have the business in the industry in order to set up the dispensaries and the growers and the processors and the testing labs. That's perfectly understandable. Um, But there's parts of 65 
that that has been said many times that seemed much more focused on the business than the medical. And the four that just we kept on struggling with were the two and a half ounces. And you know, I spent a day with Dr. Walker and people at Ole Miss and, and learned a lot more about this in addition to all the education we got during the, the campaign. But it was the two and a half ounces, the THC limit, the certificate versus the prescription, and then the delivery mechanism. Because on one of these poster boards up here, it references a code section as it exists on whatever the date is, July 1 of a certain year. And that, that lists all the delivery mechanisms by which you can get um, the marijuana, whether it's smoking, vaping, what have you. And as Dr. Dobbs said, that's just inherently not medical in certain, certain situations. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs shares Perry's skepticism. He says a medical marijuana program could give doctors agency to prescribe the drug indiscriminately, potentially making it available to minors. He proposes that a more straightforward approach to marijuana might be the right fit for the state. Um, I do think that if you look at Oklahoma, I think most of the users there are not strictly medical users under our definition. Um, I do think that a lot of the demand for this from the most vocal advocates has been from a recreational perspective. Um, In a way, I think that um, a well-managed recreational program would be less dangerous than a a medical program where people think they should be taking doses all day long on high THC. I think it's, it's dangerous versus someone who might use it recreationally from time to time. I think that's a legitimate debate. Coming up, what Moderna's application for FDA approval of its COVID-19 vaccine could mean for Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. Drug maker Moderna says it's applying for full FDA approval of its COVID-19 vaccine, which is currently under emergency use authorization. Approval could allow schools and employers to require vaccinations. And in a vaccine-hesitant state like Mississippi, that's especially significant. Speaking with our Kobe Vance, Dr. Rambod Rubash of the Hattiesburg Clinic illuminates what FDA approval might and might not change about the perception of the vaccine. authorization and full licensure is that the volunteers are observed for a longer period of time to make sure the medication, in this case the vaccine, does what it's supposed to and it's safe. So once we move from emergency use authorization to full FDA approval, um, it will allow a number of things. One, um, it may incidentally raise public confidence in the vaccines. Um, The companies can also market directly to consumers at that point, which they've been unable to do up until now. And then from a legal standpoint, businesses, including the U.S. military, uh, will be able to require employees to be vaccinated before being able to work. I wanted to start off by talking about marketing to consumers. What does that mean and how can that help uh, improve vaccination rates? 
Well, we've all grown accustomed to seeing some of these advertisements on television and sometimes in magazines and websites for uh, medications with a long list of disclaimers at the very end. Those are those are direct to consumer pharmaceutical advertisements. So um, being able to do that may raise a bit of awareness in the case of this particular um, set of medications or vaccinations. It's going to be pretty hard to imagine that's going to make much difference in the face of a global pandemic. I think you're going to have very few people that are unaware of the availability of these vaccines, um, but it, it may prove to be effective if um, they're able to maybe reverse the ideas of those that are vaccine hesitant with being able to put more direct-to-consumer information out there. But that's basically what it will uh, allow them to do is to go directly to consumers and not rely on physicians to reach out to patients. And you mentioned businesses can start to require the vaccines. Uh, what businesses do you think might pursue that uh, route? And, you know, what what should Mississippians be expecting in the, in the future? Well, traditionally, um, healthcare uh, entities have required certain vaccinations for people to be able to work, most notably um, hepatitis B vaccination or proof of immunity and things of that nature. So I would imagine there will be some healthcare entities, including hospitals, uh, that might require this vaccination or some sort of opt-out for those that are um, not wanting to get it or maybe have previously have had the illness and uh, don't want the vaccine. There could be all sorts of uh, businesses that may wind up requiring this, uh, depending on what they perceive to be the level of risk. This could include our frontline workers, uh, the very same people that were uh, first to open up, like uh, people that work at grocery stores, our educators, um, our service people in various lines, including fire and uh, police and, and things of that nature. So those will be up to the individual businesses. Um, they will be able to, however, do this um, once something is fully FDA approved. Do you think that once these vaccines receive approval, or full approval from the FDA, and businesses start to require them, that we'll see a lot of people pushing back against that? Um, I think if I had to prognosticate, this would likely increase consumer confidence in the vaccines. Um, there certainly uh, will likely be some pushback against those that were vaccine hesitant and are still vaccine hesitant if their employers then mandate it. Um, I would imagine this issue is going to be one that's finessed and not as cut and dry as something such as, say, hepatitis vaccination for healthcare workers. So I anticipate there being some accommodation for those that are hesitant or that for those that refuse. For instance, um, in a lot of healthcare settings, if uh, people refuse to get the flu vaccine and then they wind up becoming sick with flu, then they don't get paid time off for that illness. So there may be uh, things like that in various iterations of various businesses. But my hope is FDA approval will bolster confidence. And if people do wind up uh, requiring it in their business places, people may hopefully be more likely to, to get it. But I do suspect that there will be pushback for those that uh, retain some hesitancy. It's important to bear in mind what FDA approval really means versus the emergency use authorization is that we've had a longer period of time to look at the people that volunteered for the trials and how they did um, in terms of both safety and efficacy. Um, the only reason we have emergency use author authorization is because after September 11, 2001, 
they, we wanted to have a pathway to get medications. Um, you remember back then we had uh, threats of bioterrorism and anthrax, anthrax attacks and possibly smallpox and all these kind of things. So that was created in 2001 to allow us to quickly disseminate medications to those people in the face of a public health emergency. So now we fast forward to um, where we are now in 2021 and we've been living under the emergency use authorization of these vaccines because the efficacy and safety data were so good that after about three months worth of data progressing on to six months you would think would only help bolster consumer confidence and decrease hesitancy uh, dr rambod rubosh is director of forest general hospital family medicine residency program and physician at the hattiesburg clinic dr rubosh thank you for joining us today my pleasure Coming up, reproductive rights advocates speak out as Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban goes to the Supreme Court. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban is headed to the Supreme Court, escalating ever-present tensions over reproductive rights. At a press conference this week hosted by Rewire News, abortion rights advocates expressed frustration with the current state of reproductive care in the Deep South. Lori Bertram Robers is executive director of an abortion fund called the Yellowhammer Fund. They say that Mississippi's ban and its ensuing legal battle is evidence of misplaced priorities. It's deeply offensive to me for our state to be focused and spending money on this case and focusing on this case as if this is a public health crisis, when they will not spend any money in Jackson to fix our water system. They will not spend any money on the, in the Delta to fix water systems in the Delta. They're not at all concerned about the lead levels that are happening under several um, zip codes in Jackson, Mississippi, how many kids are getting lead poisoning mm-hmm. and, and higher lead levels than in Flint. They're not concerned about our maternal health crisis. They're not concerned about the infant mortality crisis. They don't care that they're wasting money. They'll sit there and say over and over again, we can't afford Medicaid expansion. We can't afford Medicaid expansion. But yet they can they can afford to like mess off all this money every year on these useless, useless lawsuits. And not just lawsuits on this. Let's talk about all the times they've criminalized people for pregnancy outcomes that they've mm-hmm. spent hundreds of thousands of dollars for no out, like no criminal case, just like nothing. So there's just all these weird priorities when we could be paying for Medicaid expansion and then I could never get another call again for someone with pre-existing conditions that are unmanaged who now needs an abortion because they can't carry the term because of the pre-existing conditions that are unmanaged. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Someone who wants to be pregnant. According to Shannon Brewer, anti-abortion activism is reaching a fever pitch in Mississippi. Brewer says protests outside the Jackson Women's Health Organization, which she runs, have intensified over the past month. The antis are getting worse. Um, The police are doing nothing about it. The city is doing nothing about it. Um, They they tell us there's nothing they can do. It's at the point now we call the police, they don't even come. Mm-hmm. They've taken, like she said, the or- we had the ordinance, all of the, everybody around in the neighborhood 
got together, got the ordinance. It was a, a noise ordinance and a, uh, like a buffer zone ordinance. It was put in place. The city came and put signs up and everything. That we weren't told there was some secret meeting had. The next thing we know, the signs were being taken down. Um, and we later found out that the, the antis decided to sue the city as they do. And it's, mm -hmm. for some reason, the city won't stand up. They get scared and back down. So they took the ordinance back down. And which leaves us basically on our own. It's like we're on, you know, it's like an island up to itself. We have no help. We have no help around here. Um, and it's getting worse. And on top of that, we have the Supreme Court thing that just came up. So now everybody's calling. We get co constant calls every day because uh, patients think we're closed. They think we're getting ready to close. So everybody's in a rush trying to get here and to make sure they're not going to be too far. And so this is what we're dealing with every single day. And since the road thing, since the, um, the Supreme Court thing came, it's gotten even worse. Right now, an appellate court decision prohibits Mississippi from enforcing its 15-week abortion ban. But a Supreme Court reversal could put the Jackson Women's Health Organization's or operations in jeopardy. Brewer says she's determined to provide reproductive care for Mississippians, even if the case doesn't turn out as she hopes. I just know that we're going to keep fighting. We're trying to fight as hard as we possibly can. Of course, we're not going to give up. Um, we got some good people on our side, mm -hmm. and if, if the Supreme Court is is who they say they are, and 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 they are people are actually of their word, then we we should win. I would hope so, but you know we don't know how it's going to go. But within the within this next year, we're just going to work hard to keep seeing patients, to hopefully um, not have to at any time stop seeing patients, because that's what where the difficulties are going to come what our where our next step is if if all else fails worst case scenario and we have to stop seeing patients i still don't think that we would stop seeing patients meaning we will find a way to get patients the safe abortions that they need the safe health care that they need regardless we're, we are hoping we don't have to do that and go to those efforts but if that is what it comes to then that's what it comes to it's unclear when the Supreme Court will issue a decision on the matter. Coming up, what COVID-19 relief could mean for Mississippi schools. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A new peer report on education funding shows Mississippi spends less per student than neighboring states like Arkansas and Alabama. But billions in COVID relief could help revitalize the state's school systems. Rachel Cantor is executive director of Mississippi First, an education advocacy group. In a conversation with our Desiree Frazier, she lays out what schools in Mississippi look like right now and what they could look like in the future. I think that the biggest thing that this report was trying to do was not only look at what Mississippi school districts received in terms of revenues and the how they spent it, the budget categories they spent it in, but how that compared to contigu what the, the report calls contiguous states, which looks at Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, et cetera. And one of the things that you notice right away is that Mississippi does spend 
slightly smaller amounts of funding per pupil than those other states. And when you compare that spending, but when you, you know, those, those differences are, are small in terms of, you know, it might be a hundred dollars difference or, but when you add that up over time or and over a larger population of schools, you can see how that can add to a significant amount of difference. The other thing that really jumps out is something that we all know if we work in education, which is that the majority of a school district's budget is going to be spent on instructional expenditures. This typically means teachers, teacher salaries. And if Mississippi is spending smaller amounts of funding per pupil on students as surrounding states and they're spending most of that money on instruction, you can exactly see how Mississippi teacher salaries are slightly lower than all of our surrounding states. There are COVID monies in here to the tune of about $2.5 billion three or so different pots of money. How substantial will that be for school districts in bringing them up to speed in some areas? Yeah, the amount of money that's coming from the federal government in the last year due to COVID is a tremendous amount of money compared to what school districts would typically receive in a typical year. In general, the state spends about $2.2 billion dollars on an annual basis on MAEP. So when you're talking about $2.5 billion coming from the federal government um, for these other purposes, you can see that it's just a tremendous amount of money. And the question for school districts will be, can they put those dollars to work in ways that will that will not only address the, the immediate issues that have been caused by COVID, but some of the longer term issues that that have been exacerbated by COVID, and that's a real that's a real hard thing for school districts to have to figure out how to do and how to do it well within a fairly short period of time. They do have a little bit of a longer runway with that those dollars. They don't have to be spent within 12 months, but even some of the the pots that have the farthest out timelines, we're only talking about a two or three year runway. The so school districts are going to have to figure out how to absorb that massive amount of money, how to spend it well, and how to figure out how to spend those things, that those dollars on things that will help students long term and put the school district in a better position at the end of that funding time period than they than they were before uh, it began. What would be an example of some of those areas that would really be cost effective for them to put the money into? Mm-hmm. Well, investing dollars in changing long-term processes. So they could invest money into establishing something like one-to-one initiatives. A lot of the, the do- early dollars that came from the federal government were spent by the legislature on investing in devices for every student. But just having device is only one piece of being able to have a school district that truly has a technology-infused instructional model. There are all sorts of other costs that have to go into it. Some of those are one-time costs in training and professional development that has to be done and other, other infrastructure that has to be put in place so that students and teachers can really use those devices to be instructional tools. There are other aspects that school districts could invest in. They can invest in high-quality curriculum and the training that is necessary to carry out the, that high-quality curriculum. 
a lot of that training could be front-loaded so that over time you may need refresher courses, but you don't need the level of intensity to move to those high-quality curriculums. You can focus on teacher training on other areas that teachers, you know, maybe don't have time to, to or the money to, to get that, that quality professional development currently. Some school districts may be talking about moving to different types of schedules, whether extended day or extended year, and you can look at investing some of that money in the upfront costs so that by the time the two- or three-year funding cliff comes around, you know what your stable ongoing costs are and you have a plan for how to continue those services because you're mostly shifting. You've figured out how to shift your dollars. So there are lots of different things that school districts can do. I know some school districts will be investing in upgrading buildings and facilities that they've been, they've been putting off those um, those upgrades for a long time because there just hasn't been the money. And now they've got the money. But everybody's going to have to make choices, and it's going to be dependent on what's best for that individual community of kids. Rachel Cantor, Executive Director of Mississippi First, thank you so much for your um, input on this report and sharing your perspective. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.